saving money on everything for your projects. Now at Menards, we have it all for garden and landscaping essentials. Visit our outdoor garden center today and update your backyard space. Grid accents lattice panels have a timeless design with an innovative design that's simple to install and requires almost no maintenance. Save big on lattice panel options at Menards. View our entire selection of garden center products today on Menards.com. Save big money at Menards. After the end of a good fight, you deserve an ice cold reward. Medela, you put in the hours, the energy, the tough labor, because you know the bigger the fight, the better the reward. Medela, the mark of the fight. Drink responsibly. Beer imported by Crown Import, Chicago, Illinois. Hello and welcome to This is Critical. I'm Virginia Heffernan. This is Critical is the show where we examine all of our cultural assumptions, like that monkeying with your hormones is as easy as just chugging testosterone at a frat party, the way Tucker Carlson is sort of implying it is in his weird new manhood project. When in fact, in my experience, every time some hormone doctor tells you that one hormone's low, she adds that to change it, you'd need to get an androgen antagonist to antagonize the pituitary gland to produce more of the hormone, which in a paradoxical way will reduce that hormone's bioavailability and encourage more muscle mass that in turn will eat the rest of your muscle mass. It just gets really complex. So I worry about Tucker because the hormonal thicket he's entering is dark and deep. And I fear it might not give him the steroid jolt of manliness and virility he's seeking. So as I've probably bored you all with before, I'm sober. I did it the old fashioned way with the cornball slogans and the steps and I haven't had a drink in 10 years. But lately, some of the glamorous, sober influencers have caught my eye. And I started to wonder if I should have done a more, like a hipper version, maybe, of not drinking. The kind with adaptogen mocktails made by Katy Perry, and there were apps and hashtags and TikTok. So I looked into all the sober AF meme people and their programs, and wow, they make some awesome promises that the 12-step programs do not. Not only do they say that you'll be healthier if you don't drink, but also wealthy and hot and thin as hell and balanced and not anxious. And you don't even have to decide to stop drinking. Like according to one program, you just take a new pill and then you'll naturally ease up on the booze. I mean, why have I been doing these weird, embarrassing, man-repelling prayer meetings when I could be in a cool influencer group with like hot, sober Russell Brand? Okay, well, in that case, according to my research, I've avoided that because he's Russell Brand. I don't know if you've seen this, but Russell Brand has turned sober into sort of susber lately. Okay, that didn't work. But anyway, yes, Katy Perry's ex-husband is still the flamboyant one-time heroin user who swapped drugs for the sober papacy in 2002. Brand now calls himself prophetic and dresses like the Lizard King. His florid self-promotion and orientalist affectations, he's even got some zeal for, like, dime store Hare Krishnaism, it seems to keep drawing acolytes to him. Lately, Brand has espoused so-far-left-its-right politics. 
You know, the ones that confuse the principles of liberal humanism with market-driven neoliberalism. And, you know, occasionally, Brand seems determined to consign the whole liberal project, including science and voting, to the trash heap of history. What is wrong with people? Recently, he's been talking about anti-vax stuff and Hillary Clinton. So I read through all his stuff and decided Russell Brand wasn't for me. And then I read the Sober Boss Babe stuff, and I looked at flowers and vegan spreads and really expensive mocktails and odd uses of umlauts. I guess I'm going to stick with my old-time church basement sobriety. I wrote about these new sober influencers this month in Wired. My article is called The End of Alcohol. You can look for it on Wired.com. So today we are talking about other kind of self-improvement health measures, and these are pretty extreme. My guest to talk about them is Peter Ward. He's a journalist and the author of the new book, The Price of Immortality, The Race to Live Forever. And yes, we are talking about living forever. We're talking about the idea of immortality and and people who create immortality projects and devote their one time on earth to making that time on earth as long as possible. This modern movement involves things as disparate as old people putting young blood in themselves, like something out of Mad Max, and intermittent fasting, cryonics, and even more and weirder experimental procedures, all with the end goal of living longer, but not necessarily better lives. Peter's got the whole story on this. I'm really excited he's here. Peter, welcome to This is Critical. Thanks so much for having me on. It's great to be on the show. Well, as you know, immortality uh, as a goal for other people fascinates me. Um, Not my own goal, for what it's worth. I'm just going to give up. I'm going to go gentle into that good night. That's my plan. But first, I want to know about the hidden costs of chasing immortality. Yeah, absolutely. So I think I think the hidden cost, uh, the major one, I guess, is that you can focus all your life on trying to live a little bit longer and then forget to actually live your life. Um, you can get really obsessed with all the things that potentially make you live a little bit longer yeah. um, and then live this sort of half-life where you, you're sort of starving yourself all the time. You're taking all these supplements and, and you're obsessing over this. Yeah, that's what, that would seem to be a major one. <laughs> yeah. There's obviously loads of costs if we did actually manage it, which is a long shot, but obviously there's there's issues like overpopulation and a stagnant population. We could have Hmm. the same people who are voting now could be voting in another hundred years and that thought alone could be terrifying for a lot of people, Mm -hmm. particularly someone who's who's lived through Brexit here in the UK. Um, (laughs) To have the Brexit voters vote for a little bit longer would be would be terrifying. Are you are you saying? Oh my god! Wait, this is so. You think mortality is sort of a voter suppression measure? Um, Interesting. (laughs) Yeah, imagine if if you you, people who had lived for a really long time and accumulated wealth, and they were just voting for their own interests more and more and more, and just did so forever. Yeah, I mean, but because what you point out is people who want to live forever, who are taking a run at it, are a very self-selecting group that are single-mindedly focused on 
perpetuation of their their own individual lives, not even just some kind of thousand-year Reich where their political views or their children or their descendants live forever, but just them. So that's such a specific mindset that if indeed they get somewhere to, uh, to, you know, 150 years, 200 years, the people with the longest lives are going to be a very particular kind of person. Yeah, absolutely. So, okay, Let's get into the Church of Perpetual Life, which is where you start your book. This church is in Hollywood, Florida, and it's kind of a gathering place. Is that right for some of these immortalists? Tell me about the Church of Perpetual Life. Yeah, that was my first sort of encounter with immortalists and uh, these people that want to live forever and they'll do anything they can to do it to the point where they've made it almost into, well, completely into religion because the Church of Perpetual Life is a registered um, church. And it, and it is religion. They only meet once a month. So so it's mostly kind of like presentations and slideshows mm. and things on like science, which may or may not possibly offer a little bit of hope of immortality. Um, but there are parts of it where they're really sort of um, stirring up the congregation and it gets almost like a rally against death. Um, so there was a part in the, in the service that I went to where uh, someone stood up and, and they listed off the millionaires and very rich people who had died since they'd last met. And it was almost mocking them as if to say like, mm. oh, look at all these people that died with all that money. Why didn't they throw it all into anti-aging when they could still be alive today? They could have helped us, all of us live longer as well. Um, so yeah, fascinating crowd. So it seems to me especially odd to call this a church and borrow Christian iconography because right there's a perfectly sturdy an old idea of eternal life in Christianity already. It's like even as far back as, what, Elizabethan times, you had John Donne writing, Death Be Not Proud, Death Thou Shalt Die, I think he wrote. And it all comes back to this Christian idea, right, that making it to heaven means your soul goes on forever. Why wasn't that enough? Like, why suddenly did these uh, new immortalists decide that the eternal life they craved required supplements instead of good deeds or God's grace. Yeah, I think I think us as humans, we always, we need some kind of explanation for why we die. There's obviously something evolutionary that we, we fear death, and that's obviously for survival. Um, but because we've got these sort of over-evolved brains that can think of things beyond what we actually need to do to survive. Um, we start thinking why we die and we start to try and contend with that. For a long time, religion has a- answered that question, obviously. It tells you, you know, you don't have to worry about death because when you die, you will go, if you've been a good person, you'll, you'll go to heaven and you'll live an everlasting happiness. Um, but I think, obviously, there's always been alternative answers to that. Um, so when someone says, essentially, you know, um, there's going to be a judgment day and then there's going to be heaven and eternal, everlasting happiness. Uh, so they believe that that is essentially something that humans' responsibility to do. So mm. instead of us just sitting back and saying, okay, well, God's going to sort it all out at the end, they actually think that our purpose is to make heaven on earth. And as part of that is to make sure that we all live forever here on earth in, in a very physical way rather than just the way that's sort of described um, quite vaguely in the Bible. So yeah, so there's a number of different religions that actually have immortalists in them and, and transhumanism, and, and they find that they can live together in some cases. Okay, that's interesting. But I, I, And I want to get to transhumanism, but one thing that seems especially unappealing to me about all this, 
And I wonder if you can tell me how the immortalists think about it. I I don't know. I can't imagine that anyone wants to live to 150 if the last 50 years of that, you're completely infirm, right? So there's a thing in uh, the immortalists believe in, which is called uh, longevity escape velocity, which essentially means that if you manage to live for another, say, 20, 30 years, then you'll reach the point where technology is able to uh, make you live another 50 years. And then, so you'll live for those other 50 years. And during that time, some more technology will arrive and then you'll be able to live for another 100 years. And that will kind of keep going, keep going until you choose when you die. So for them, they would be happy to live, I think, for 20 years in absolute misery as long as they thought they were going to hit that escape longevity, which is kind of like the singularity moment um, that the Ray Kurzweil talks about in technology, where um, all these medical technologies just sort of start moving on on an exponential curve. And then at that point, it's like, okay, we're going to have nanobots in our blood. We're going to have, um, you know, cyborg bodies. Anything is possible and anything can be fixed. So I think they probably would take that if you said, okay, I'll give you an extra 30 years, but you're going to be in pain for all 30 of them. If they thought they could hit that escape longevity, then they would absolutely take it. Um, The sort of group consciousness, yeah, it is quite a sort of, on the whole, it's quite a selfish pursuit. Mm. So, so people, a lot of a lot of immortalists are very much like, no, I want to do this myself. They're not in it for the for the whole population. Obviously, most of them think that would be nice. Yeah, but it's a very sort of personal mission. Yeah. So the idea of these sort of cyborg bodies or nanobots in the blood—that's um, getting into transhumanism, right? Can you tell me about transhumanism? Yeah. So transhumanism is. It's it's just a belief system where you, where you believe in in sort of augmenting the the human experience through technology. Um, so that can be something really simple. That can be like wearing contact lenses, or um, you know something something that we do every day. That could technically be transhumanism. Yeah. And, and then there's loads of things within transhumanism, like uh, biohacking. So like following certain diets and just making the most of your body and like optimizing your body, so you're making the most out of it. Um, some transhumanists take nootropics, the, the drugs that supposedly make you more, um, well, intelligent, I guess. Um, That's like NOO tropics, right? Yeah, and yeah. What does that even mean? I've seen that, but I don't even understand. How does it make you smarter and why am I not taking them? Um, so if you watch the movie Limitless um, with, uh, I think it's Bradley Cooper, that's okay. essentially nootropics. It's a pill that's, that is supposed to make you more sharp and... and, and um, more alert and essentially more intelligent. Um, there's absolutely no proof that this works. Um, they they can have sort of similar effects, to, I guess, like a, a coffee or or something like that. Um, but they are definitely dressed up as these kind of miracle pills in some ways. And, and people actually go to great lengths to get some of the ones that are supposed to nootropics. Like, and so so within transhumanism, it's immortalism. So it's kind of like a branch within transhumanism. It's one of the more extreme branches. And so you can pretty much guarantee if, if, you know, if you're an immortalist, there's a strong chance that you're into everything else that transhumanism stands for. So you want to be better in the short term, kind of hotter and fitter and smarter um, than everyone else, but you also want to live longer. Are those things ever at odds with each other? Like I think about, you know, Tucker Carlson's recent panic around dropping testosterone levels, which what he says is men are becoming less manly um, and I think need to do things that increase their testosterone. It seems like something like that, 
trying to be more manly in the short term could actually be at odds with living for a long time. I mean, steroids notoriously damage your health in the long term. Anyway, are those things ever at odds? Just trying to live forever, but, you know, jacking your life in the short term or making a great life in the short term, but maybe dying earlier. Yeah, so immortalism is all about making tiny, tiny changes in your lifestyle to make you live even a second longer. Mm. Um, so it's really about optimizing yourself um, to make sure you hit that escape velocity that I mentioned before. Yeah. Um, so, for example, I, th- I think something like bulking up at the gym um, would not necessarily be advantageous. Like They're looking at different things. They're looking at biomarkers. They take regular blood tests um, to pick up these biomarkers to see things like telomere length and, and things like that. And what you find is like most of them just, um, if you walk into a room of immortalists, you, you find that a lot of them are quite thin. Um, they have a sort of almost gaunt look. A lot of them are doing intermittent fasting, which is a huge um, sort of tenet of, of immortalism is everyone is intermittently fasting. Mm-hmm. Um, they're very careful what they eat. Um, they're not going out and eating steaks, I think, like Tucker Carlson wants us all to do. Um, ah, right. <laughs> um, yeah, and then lastly, most of them are actually quite old. Um, hmm. So someone said to me, when I spoke to one expert, he says, yeah, I've seen I've seen those guys. They show up to some of my talks, and, you know, you can spot them a mile away because they look very gaunt. They've all dyed their hair, and they're all very old, trying to look younger. Hmm. You know, also mostly male, I think. I, I haven't been able to look into any kind of numbers. I don't think there's any numbers out there, but... I would say mostly white, mostly male, mostly reasonably wealthy, um, and then following these these bizarre diets and things like that. So you mentioned telomeres. What is the science, quotation marks around that, what's the science about telomeres? Yeah, so telomeres uh, are best described as they're like, um, you know, on the end of your shoelace, you have a little bit piece of plastic that keeps it from getting frayed. Yeah. Um, so they're that equivalent on a body cell. Um so the idea is once those telomeres get too short, then the cell is more prone to damage and then they can turn cancerous or they can, you know, lots of bad things can happen. Mm. So um, there's this sort of um, theory that that spread quickly in the anti-aging and, and immortalist communities that, you know, telomeres need to be long. You need long telomeres. So you do whatever you can do to, to do that. Um, <laughs> so I'm sorry, but also yeah. like, is this science, you know? Yeah, so there is some scientific basis to it, but then the science sort of changed. It said actually maybe too long telomeres will actually give you cancer or will mess you up in different ways. So then it became a sort of, okay, we need our telomeres, not too long, not too short. But out of this sort of grew this sort of, you can, so you can get things like telomere lengthening tests, um, mm. like your tello score and things like that. And most of those are actually nonsense. They're completely rubbish. <laughs> Shocker. <laughs> yeah, like unless um, someone's doing it, in a laboratory and they're a trusted name, then you're pretty sure that your, your telomeres aren't being measured properly. And also telomere length apparently is all relative to your own body. So, mm. And then with, with intermittent fasting, so I, I don't want to encourage anyone to fast, but that if someone put a gun to my head and said, give me one thing that will actually benefit my health and make me live longer, the research actually does back up intermittent fasting to a certain extent. Essentially, it's tricking your cells. So the idea is, you know, we're any animal on Earth, when there's a lot of abundant resources, um, the body kind of just lets itself go a little bit. Um, Whereas when resources are scarce, the body starts to sort of regenerate almost because it knows that there's not much resources out there. So the body is much healthier when resources are scarce. 
So you're basically tricking your body into thinking that resources are scarce and that you're starving. Um, and during those times, they're, they're supposed to have a regenerative effect. Oh, I actually just heard a debunking of intermittent fasting. I should flag for listeners on the excellent podcast, Call Me Curious. So I know the data is mixed on it, but it does seem like we can agree that immortality is not guaranteed by any of these things. Yeah, absolutely. So how can you lengthen your telomeres, but not, of course, lengthen them too far? Um, there are some drugs that uh, apparently you can trick, like the tripper, a, a sort of mechanism within the body to, to lengthen them or, or keep them protected. Got um, it. But they're not, again, like this is all like, it's not been done in humans. It, this is all in sort of mice. Um, and give it enough time and, and something else will change. So, yeah, it's really, it, this is like classic stuff that is just what you're doing with your time here on Earth on the off chance that you might live a little bit longer. Um, like, do you really want to walk around starving all day just for the sake of maybe being a bit healthier? Or do you just want to eat when you get up in the morning and have a big breakfast and enjoy your life? Right. I mean, but on the other hand, you know, just to play the contrarian, there are people who genuinely enjoy abstemious life, like restrictive dieting, sort of mortification of the flesh, living in the gym. I mean, don't you think that this could be part of, for some, a happy life, even if it's a little perverse? Uh, yeah. I mean, there's probably is some kind of effect that will make you slightly healthier, just um, in the same way as like a placebo pill. So I guess that there is that that probably could have some actual like real world effects. Yeah. And I think with the sort of ritual of, of doing things, I think a lot of it goes back to sort of, you know, we all want to be the hero of our own story, ultimately. Yeah. And I think that also gives us that sort of reassurance over death. If we can paint ourselves as the hero in in, in our lifetime, um, in any tiny way, then it does reassure you that maybe, you know, you're doing something before you die um, and it's worth it. I get that impulse. I mean, it's part of the human condition to want to leave a legacy, like through le having children or grandchildren, doing service to your community, creating great art or some kind of Ayn Randian architectural legacy. I mean, in that way, we all sort of fear the permanence of death or at least the permanence of our absence from the world, and we strive to counteract it. After the break, some of the shadowy prophets of this world of immortality. Save big money on everything for your spring projects at Menards. We have all of your garden and landscaping essentials. Master Garden Premium Garden Soil contains a slow-release fertilizer that feeds gardens for up to nine months. It produces better results and is ready to use for all your gardening needs. Save big on Menards' great selection of garden and landscaping products. Compare brands in-store or online at Menards.com. Save big money at when your space has the long-lasting, noticeable scent of Airwick Vibrant Scented Oils, you'll want to invite everyone over, from book club to the fantasy league, even the in-laws. It smells amazing. Airwick Vibrant Scented Oils are infused with two times more natural essential oils versus regular Airwick Scented Oils for our most authentic, nature-inspired fragrance experience. Hmm. Transform your space with scents like white sage and mahogany or lavender and water lily. Now that's a breath of fresh Airwick. my guest, Peter Ward, who's taking us through the twisted ideology of the immortalists who aim to live forever and see whatever humanity makes of our present circumstances. 
Like I mentioned to Peter, wanting not only your legacy, but your literal cells to persist in this world seems like a strange turn of cultural events. Yeah, I mean, you could describe it as as the ultimate vanity project, really. Almost all of them are science fiction fans, and they're very optimistic about the future. They see it as this amazing place, this utopia where, you know, technology has allowed us to sort of to, to right all the wrongs in the world. And they want to be a part of that. Instead of actually contributing to that, they think, no matter what, I'm going to live forever myself. Um, and I think in their heads, they say, well, if I, if I do this and I can prove that we can live a bit longer than I am contributing to it in some way. Mm, um, mm-hmm. But it's interesting that their sort of order of, of doing things is achieve immortality first, then fix the world. Whereas I would strongly advocate for doing it the other way around. Um, <laughs> on the chance, on the sort of reverse Pascal's wager, on the chance that you die as every other human who's lived has died in the past, on the on the chance, practically 100%, that you will die, yeah. uh, you maybe should do some good on Earth. Um, yeah. yeah, I think that's, I think that is very, very good advice, Peter, <laughs> for, for <laughs> listeners. Um, so, Part of the reason that immortalists feel this renewed hope that you described in their goal is that Silicon Valley has become increasingly interested in life-extending technologies. Uh, Can you tell us about Aubrey de Grey and how he fits into immortalism? Yeah, so Aubrey de Grey is basically, he's sort of like a demigod within the immortalists. He is sort of this Gandalf wizard-type figure who connects everyone in the middle if you see a picture of, of Aubrey de Grey, he has this sort of long wizard-like beard. Excellent. Um, he speaks in this very British sort of aristocrat accent. Um, and and he also drinks beer, like hmm. everyone else drinks coffee. Um, so he has these sort of weird tendencies, but he's actually in technology himself. He, he I think he did uh, artificial intelligence and things like that. Um, and he's a very intelligent man, but when he realised that nobody was addressing the issue of of aging properly, or as, as well as he thought it should be, then he um, he sort of decided he was going to fix this himself. So he he wrote a book um, about ending aging, which is very controversial. He came up with this sort of um, theory of, of regeneration, his sense. All right, that's S-E-N-S, Strategies for Engineered Negligible Senescence, right? He's got a research foundation that funds all these efforts to understand and reverse biological aging. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And um, and so he's now this sort of figure that sits and he connects, I guess, the fans with the scientists and also with the money. So he controls quite a lot of investment, um, which he gets from the people who want to live forever. Hmm. But he's right in the middle of it all. Um, and he's quite a controversial figure um, for that. A lot of people disagree with him. A lot of aging scientists disagree with him completely. Um, some of them described him as a crackpot to me. And, um, you know, he, they said he's not a scientist. He doesn't know what he's talking about. I think they would agree with him a lot more if he just cut out the immortality stuff. If he just said, we need to defeat aging that, uh, and and stop all the aging-related diseases like Alzheimer's, cancer, and heart disease. Hmm. Um but he takes it a step forward and says, no, but I will live until I'm 300, 500 or, or forever. Oh, he says 300, 500. Yeah, a lot of people will say, so it's weird. Like When you first meet an immortalist, they'll probably say, you know, I'm going to live until I'm 250. 
But then every time they mention it, the number changes and it gets <laughs> progressively higher. Um, essentially, it's, it's they want to live until they choose to die. Uh, did you point out to them or did you just let it ride that immortal doesn't actually have a number on it in my understanding of the world? So they're, get, they're extending their lives a lot or in their imagination. They're forestalling death, but they're not avoiding it. Yeah. So there's, I mean, there's some groups that, that hate the word immortal. Ah, they're still basically looking for the same thing. It, they still want to live radically extended lives, but they don't like the word immortal because they think that's impossible. And it is technically immortality is, is impossible if you think that we don't even know if the universe is is immortal. Um, mm-hmm. and, and the sun at some point will obviously engulf the earth. So your chances of living forever are actually incomprehensibly slim. Mm-hmm. Um, in the true sense of the word. So when they say immortal and call themselves immortalists, it's more just like, I want to live for as long as I want, essentially. But you get people that say, you know, I, I could see myself living until 200 to 300, but never to 1,000. Or I can uh, see myself living 5,000, but not 500,000 years. Because then they start to reproduce the logic of ordinary life. You know, the argument that makes sense of death to some of us in the ordinary life who have our feet on the ground, that, you know, you don't want to live forever because it gives sort of structure to your life to imagine that you only have a certain amount of time on Earth. Yeah, exactly. It's funny that these guys see themselves as extremely rational, and yet a lot of this is, as you say, sort of sci-fi. So I want to talk about a couple of other figures in this world in addition to Aubrey de Grey, the kind of Gandalfy prophet. Let's start with Ray Kurzweil, a titan in this world, who you mentioned earlier. Yeah, so so he's he's an inventor originally. He's... Um, really clever guy, and he uh, is behind a lot of the singularity theories, which is essentially that we reach a point in time, um, and we don't know when that's going to come, but it's always promised to be quite soon, um, where technology starts um, progressing on an exponential curve, and it goes up insanely quickly. I think a lot of people describe it as like the point where an AI can build a more intelligent AI, um, mm, mm-hmm. and then it sort of um, it. it it keeps going from there until you've got insanely intelligent machines. Um, and he is an immortalist. He believes that he can live forever as long as he catches that singularity event uh, where technology goes crazy. Um, and he's well known for taking sort of hundreds of supplements a day. He was interestingly employed by Google. Um, and I think they just hired him to have him around, essentially. Yeah, because he's sort <laughs> um, of a grandfather of, of this world. Yeah, yeah. He's absolutely worshipped um, by a lot of people in Silicon Valley. Like, um, he's almost sort of like profit status. Yeah. I mean, all these Silicon Valley tech and AI guys getting into the idea of biohacking, it's almost like their viewpoint is that our bodies have some kind of computer code inside. And some of us have a kind of bad code, so buggy, and just needs to be fixed. I mean, it's clearly something that's both less and more than science. So it's science up to a point, And then... There's a huge gap, and then there's science the other side, theoretical science. But like, there's this huge gap in the middle of how you get from from the science to the theoretical science. Yeah, and that requires like um, to make this metaphor even more clumsy, a sort of leap of faith. Um, yeah, yeah. When you go away from science, um, and you see that in a lot of the immortalist um, thinking, like particularly in cryonics, for example, it's really obvious in cryonics, like freezing people and then trying to reanimate them in the future. They think that they can freeze the body and preserve it reasonably well, but they have no idea how to reanimate them. But they believe that scientists in the future will work that out. So Mm -hmm. 
it's kind of like you have to put a lot of faith in scientists of the future. Yeah. And science of the future that we will discover something. But sometimes that means that you don't necessarily work that hard to bridge that gap. You just assume that someone's going to do it in the future. So that's a massive danger of of immortalism as well. Yeah, I I feel like Peter Thiel was involved in setting up one of these. Um, It's like the elitist of elite clubs, you know, where you are all frozen in a room together and one day will become reanimated. Yeah, I'm sure Peter Thiel has something along those lines. Yeah. Yeah, regular cryonics, you you just pay your money or you can take out a life insurance policy, which will pay out to the cryonics company when you die. Mm. So when you die, you get frozen and then you point a kind of cylinder with a load of other people. Uh, yeah. You get your own cylinder. Um, and in some of them, you're actually hung upside down as well um, oh. in the cylinder, which is makes it a little bit more creepy. Um, <laughs> a little, right? It adds creep onto creep. Um, yeah. <laughs> I mean, so I, okay. I got to talk about another figure in this world, Dave Asprey. He's probably known to listeners as the kind of author of something called Bulletproof Coffee. I actually tried it for a while. Uh, it didn't do much for weight loss. I don't think it could guarantee immortality. But anyway, what was your encounter with Dave, Peter? I went to one of the, um, I guess, best described as like the Coachella for immortalists. It's mm. um, called Radfest. Okay. So Dave Asprey did a talk. Um, and so he was supposed to be doing a talk on, on improving your um, immune system. But obviously, it's all linked to sort of living longer. Um, and the first thing he recommended just absolutely threw me completely. I couldn't believe anybody could stand up and say this. Okay. Um, he he said that one of the best things you can do is take uh, ozone therapy. Um, ozone therapy. So ozone therapy is essentially when you uh, when you ingest some way um, ozone gases, uh, the same things that stop the sun destroying us essentially, which are in the atmosphere. Hmm. Um, so ozone gases are completely poisonous to inhale. Um, they're corrosive, they're terrible. And the FDA says they shouldn't be used in any kind of medical procedure. Wow. Um, But the way that he said you should take them was even more startling. He said that he recommends you take them rectally. So he literally told a a room full of people hanging on his every word to to take poisonous um, corrosive gases and and, um, even said you can do this at home as long as you're careful. My God. I mean, you know, do you hear a little bit of, I mean, certainly masochism and, you know, mortification of the flesh, but also almost like a suicidal impulse alongside the professed desire for immortality? Yeah, I think with David Asprey in particular, you know, he's like the professional biohacker. Yeah. It's almost like a, like a Jesus complex because it's almost like I will go and do all these experiments for you and then I will come back with the results. Like I'm going to go and nail myself to the cross and the chance that maybe I'll live a bit longer. Yeah. But he just comes across so sort of almost like like macho in a way as well. It's like, you know, I do all this, I do this, I make all these sacrifices and, you know, I'm going to do this. But and then at the end of the day, all he's trying to do is sell you a few supplements and sell you a few more bulletproof coffees. Yeah. And because there's that gap in the science, because so much of it is experimental um, and so much of the research can be interpreted either way, you get these people that are very, very good at cherry-picking research and presenting it how they want to present it. Mm-hmm. Um, and then inevitably it all comes back to, oh, and by, oh, by the way, you can buy all this through me. Mm. 
But it seems like these technologists, so Kurzweil, uh, Peter Thiel, um, you know, the founder of PayPal, PayPal and the venture capitalist and very right-wing Trumpite, um, they all, it's biology that bothers them. It's the discipline, like they're good with chemistry. They're good with especially super theoretical physics. They're good with weird ideas about code, but just like cells that deteriorate, animal products, you know, vegetable products, things that wilt and wither and die, just don't quite make the cut for them. Or they're just like, they just appall their brains. Yeah, I think you're right. I think it's basically because it's the realm of science which they can't control um, and comes from something yeah. potentially bigger than them. Um, you know, the, like you said earlier, you can't just hack the code of your body. Um, you can't just go in there and change a few lines of code. And also you can't like, I don't know, you can't move fast and break things like they like to do. Well, unless you're breaking an aorta or a uh, or a, <laughs> your arm, um, <laughs> and yeah. in which case, I mean, brokenness is not like usually considered a good thing for the body. Yeah, I mean, the worry <laughs> is that they do go down that route, and obviously, it's not their own bodies that they'd be breaking; it'd be mm. trying on other people. Yeah, I mean, all these people just rejecting what actual scientists say in favor of these kind of weird dieting things. I mean, if you really want to live longer, just take the freaking vaccine and some antibiotics when you need them, right? I mean, I I wonder where this interest in unproven and dangerous remedies for our weaknesses and rejection of proven ones that actually work. I, I wonder where it comes from. Yeah, I think it. I think a lot of this is linked. Maybe I'm being naive saying, but I, I do think it is a kind of newer thing. And I think a lot of it is to do with the internet. Mm. Um, and I think a lot of it goes back to us wanting to be the hero of our own story as yeah. well. Yeah. Um, and that we've reached this point now where it's almost like we've got all this knowledge about our fingertips and we can know anything and we can um, have an opinion on anything that these people that, and they're usually the people that come from the most privileged backgrounds, it's almost boring for them to go with the crowd. Yeah, Um, yeah. And it's like, what can I do to elevate the appearance of my intelligence um, or elevate, you know, my status is... I have to go against the the herd. It's the only way. Yeah. It's like, in some way, I feel like I'm um, not as intelligent as a scientist. I'm not as intellectually um, robust as, as people that say in the mainstream things. So I'm going to invent a reality in which I am right and you are wrong. Yeah, I alone hold the key. Yeah, I think for these people, there is a bit of that. Like, it's so weird how... Immortalism is so based in science, but it almost goes full loop to anti-science at, at stages, um, where they're rejecting what the, the the gerontologists are saying about how we age, or they're rejecting just basic science and doing these crazy things. I really, really am interested in that idea that it's sort of about esoteric knowledge, um, even more than um, whatever the consequences are for the body, these projects. So... I remember, like, I mean, this maybe sounds like a confession, but here's an ego blow that I suffered in the beginning of early days of the web when I first saw Google. I had this sort of deep feeling that I would never know as much as Google. You know, it's it's kind of like what the chess grandmaster Gary Kasparov said when he played the computer Deep Blue. He just, he played for a while and then he just thought, I've lost the will to play. And there's a way that the kind of enormity of the internet, the vastness of tech, kind of confounds the individual. Like, oh, yeah, maybe the machines can defeat you. 
Yeah, I think it has caused that sort of crisis, hasn't it? It's almost like a crisis of our, our own intellect. It's like now we realize how intelligent everyone else is. Yeah. Um, how can I possibly paint myself, uh, which we all really want to do, as, as somehow special? Um, yes, yes. W- within that huge mass of like intelligence and, and information, like it's so hard to pick yourself out um, and say, oh, I'm, I'm special in some way, which is why I think people invent realities in which, in which they are. That's what it comes down to, isn't it? They all just want to be special in some way. When we get back, why do we die? Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. While no one knows what tomorrow may bring, Bridgestone is working toward a more positive outlook. With innovations like developing a tire using 75% recycled and renewable materials. It's just one of the many ways Bridgestone is making a difference today, for generations to come. Because that's what really matters. Bridgestone, solutions for your journey. Visit whatreallymatters.com to learn more. Welcome back to This is Critical. Today, my guest, Peter Ward, is walking us through Silicon Valley's odd quest for immortality. So in this conversation, you often hear all of the things that aging does to a body and how those with the right approach can be circumvented. But you rarely hear anyone discuss the question of why it is that humans die. That's not one that we've actually have a definitive answer for why and why other species die at a certain time and why we die when we do. And I think the best theory so far is essentially you've reached a point where you've you've had children and then you children have had children and you reach an age where you're no longer contributing to the community uh-huh. um, and to the greater good of, of, of humanity. So you do the decent thing and you go off and die. Ah. Um, and that, I think, is the best theory. But if you think, look at it that way, that it's so like hard-coded in, in uh, everything that, that is on the earth, that it will die. And it dies for a purpose. You know, an- animals die. Um, a lot of them die and then nourish other animals or, or keep the world going. Um, so to really fight against that is almost fighting against like the very nature of reality. It goes back to the Church of Perpetual Life when they're blaming millionaires for not doing more to keep themselves alive. Ah. Because you didn't do something right. And that weirdly goes back to a really like old um, feeling where we say, you know, death is just something that happens to the guy next to you. I think it was Ernst Becker in his book, Denial of Death, he like yes. paraphrased Plato. And he said like, luck is the other guy getting hit by the arrow. Um, mm. I think that's part of it. It's like, you know, we don't think it's going to happen to us until it does. I love that you brought up Ernst Becker because I didn't know if people still read him, but he, he yeah, I think you cite him in your book. And yeah. he is, yeah, this this idea of the denial of death and that we all have immortality projects in our heads, whether it's um, one that I didn't bring up is like certain kinds of communities 
like I've had Jewish friends tell me this, like that they're just extending a wonderful tradition and their life is a contribution to that immortal tradition, right? That like, yeah. so the culture that you're committed to and love will survive and yeah. you made a little contribution to it. And that's how their immortality project. That seems like a fairly common one. Yeah. Okay, so before we go, tell me about your own orientation toward this. I'm sure you're not immune from having your own kind of immortality project. I mean, you wrote a book, after all, and writers, notoriously, myself included, don't mind a bit of glory. So did any of this strike a chord with you while you were traveling among the immortalists? Uh, yeah, definitely. And then I always think to myself, well, you're writing a book, like, like you said, like you're writing a book, the book will survive. Yeah. I think for me, the way it really made me think was that I really do have to appreciate what I have and that it made me realize the futility of of trying to extend something beyond Mm. its proper course if I was sick and I was about to die tomorrow I might have a very different answer so it's like hard to um or if someone said you know I can make uh your dog live forever I'd probably say (laughs) say absolutely or or my wife I should have said my wife first um but (laughs) but (laughs) yeah I, I think when it's your loved ones, the, the question sort of turns. But I think that, in a way, is sort of healthy to want your loved ones to to not suffer, not go. But I yeah. think it's when it's it's when it's you. It's when you're the one that has to survive. Maybe that's when it gets a little bit unhealthy. Like in a way, the person that dies is is the one that gets away with it. Really, they don't have to put up with the grief. Mm-hmm. They don't have to live with that massive hole in their lives. Mm. Oh yeah, right. Yeah, lots of old people say, like, what's especially hard is that all my friends are dead. And yeah. the, and these people want that. They want to be the ones that lived where others died. Yeah. Which is another thing that makes it seem, seem weird. sad yeah. and perverse in a way, right? Yeah, and their grandchildren and their, anyone they ever knew that didn't sign up to the same thing as them would, would die. Um, and, you'd, and you'd outlive them. You'd, you really are like, subjecting yourself to a lot of, grief and pain yeah um and that's assuming that the world in the future is even worth living in anyway um that that it's not a hellscape that we hope it doesn't turn into um so yeah it's actually a huge huge gamble no i would never want my body to live forever but you know as as we've said we're not immune to wanting to make our mark on the earth um I mean, that's my only way that I can come to sympathy with what seems like a very selfish and, and destructive project. Yeah. And, and also a futile one. Yeah, I think that's the saddest thing, really. It's prob- I mean, it's 99.99999% chance it's, it's all going to be for nothing. I mean, what seems a little sad is that the illiteracy around the humanities, as if they're the first people ever to think of so much of English literature anyway, and and Latin and Greek and, you know, seemingly Buddhist literature, not that I know it very well, is devoted to the, just this question. Yeah, it's like literally, I mean, the Epic of Gilgamesh is like the first ever recorded story, right? Yes. And it's a caution against seeking immortality. <laughs> yes, So it's yes. like it was there from the start, the, the clues. Yeah, um. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And instead, right, they get into sort of Frankenstein territory, jump in very late to a literary tradition and decide they're going to make it real. I don't know. Well, thank you so much for being here, Peter. Really fascinating conversation. Oh, thanks so much for having me on. It's great. 
That's it for this week's episode of This is Critical. Make sure you don't miss next week's episode by following us and subscribing on Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, Pandora, or wherever you like to listen. And if you like what you hear, please take a moment to give us a rave and rate the show in Apple Podcasts. It helps other people learn about the show. For more information and to keep tabs on us, follow me on Twitter at page 88 and at this critical pod. If you've got a question or a cultural creed you think deserves another look, send us an email at thisiscriticalpod at gmail.com. This is Critical is made by me, Virginia Heffernan, and Stitcher. Corinne Wallace and Michelle O'Brien are the producers. Tracy Samuelson is our editor. Brendan Burns mixed this episode and composed our original theme. And Josephine Martirana is our executive producer. Thanks for listening and stay critical. Stitcher. deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Did you know Bridgestone developed a tire using 75% recycled and renewable materials? Making a difference today for future generations. That's what really matters. Bridgestone, solutions for your journey. Visit whatreallymatters.com to learn more.